Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. Over the last month, we've seen an unprecedented amount of activity at the Pentagon in the waning days of the Trump administration. From the ousting of Secretary of Defense Mark Esper to installing Trump loyalists in senior roles at the Pentagon to the removal of former Secretaries of State Henry Kissinger and Madeleine Albright from their long-held advisory roles. We've seen many changes within the Defense Department since Election Day. And I wanted to understand the impact that these changes would have on national security and U.S. foreign relations in the short term, and also how they'd shape foreign policy in the early days of the upcoming Biden administration. So joining me today is Malcolm Nance, who is a counterterrorism expert and retired senior chief petty officer in the U.S. Navy. In the Navy, he was a terrorism intelligence collector, code breaker, and interrogator with field and combat experience in the Middle East, Southwest Asia, and Africa. He's also a four times New York Times bestselling author, most recently of the book, The Plot to Betray America, How Team Trump Embraced Our Enemies, Compromised Our Security, and How We Can Fix It. And by the way, the foreword of that book is by none other than President Jeb Bartlett. How did you get Martin Sheen to how did you get President Bartlett to do the forward to your book? That's pretty that's pretty cool, man. I'm well, a big West Wing fan. <laughs> well, it it was an achievement. And in fact, you know, I'm sort of like a consultant to some of the stars in Hollywood. I became friends with Martin Sheen and his wonderful wife Janet and his great son Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen, who's actually wonderful. And just, you know, I learned I learned to love these people. And so when the time came, I thought, man. I already got Rob Reiner to write one, <laughs> one forward, you know, um, who can I pull out here that would write a book about, about Trump in the era, you know, it, the other books were about Russia and, you know, and how they hacked the election. And this book was about team Trump and how they worked with everybody. And I said, who can I find? I thought, I could ask Martin Sheen. And I said, but I'm not going to ask him directly because he is President Bartlett. He is Everything president, about the his best mean. president on television ever, in my, Absolutely. In my opinion. Absolutely. And in fact, um, <laughs> you know, he, he, we, I asked his wife, Janet, and I said, hey, is it possible Martin might want to write my forward? And she says, can you just give me some data points on what he should write about? And he did. And then he expanded it. And oh. I, and um, at the end, we, you'll see there's a quote from the West Wing. Oh, beautiful. Uh, which we actually had to get permission from Aaron Sorkin. So he goes, I'll call Aaron. I'll call Aaron. Right? <laughs> he gets permission. And it's this beautiful moving peon wow. to, you know, the Trump administration being bad and how you have to be the heroes that you have to, yeah. you know, you're the, the heroes you've been waiting for. Yeah. And it's written in his voice. Wow. And you can hear it 
President Jebediah Bartlett, right, is <laughs> oh coming out and, and telling you, you have to take care of this. You have to save this country. Loved every moment that is, of it. That is incredible. So nice. That's, I, I'm like, that's, we could, we could just have a whole conversation about that because, I mean, we could go on the web. But anyway, um, that's, that's super cool. I'm very jealous. Buy it just for that. <laughs> you're going to buy the book, just buy it for the book. Just forward. buy it for that. It's great to visit with you. Thank you for being here. Um, My pleasure. Uh, is there anything in your background that I missed? Any points that are salient to the discussion that we're going to have? Well, you know, coming from the intelligence community, there's lots that you missed, and that's just right, perfect, sure. right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, because I, I had a, a, a very diverse career, and uh, more importantly, is that in national security, I'm one of the few, if not the only. A person in national security media who comes from the enlisted ranks. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a field guy. Mm -hmm. I'm a field collector, and uh, in fact, when we put this whole rig together yeah. here, it took me seconds. I was like, "Oh, <laughs> this stuff's so small." You know, <laughs> when I had it, it was room size. So, you know, I I I have the ability to speak to matters as someone who actually has to go get that information. So when uh, when I'm not the on, officers who are requesting it. Or the officers who sign for my work, <laughs> right, right? right? You know, right, I mean, right. I, I joke with Naveed Jamali all the time, you know, about the difference between the wards room and the chief's mess. Mm. And he'll be like, oh, yeah, well, you know, you got to have the ward room for direction. I'm like, okay, let me point some things out to you. Every man in SEAL Team 6 is a chief. He's a Navy chief. <laughs> uh, there's an officer somewhere up there, but, you know, there's a reason they want all these career-long technical yeah. experts yeah. shooting people in the face, yeah. right? They yeah, don't want yeah, somebody yeah, who's yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. want you to sign off on the, on, you know, on the salt in the, in the officer's mess. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. And it, the funny thing is, I gave a, a great speech once with uh, Admiral Jim Stavridis, who was Supreme Allied Commander in NATO. He has, he said Southern Command, I mean, he has all this pedigree. Yeah. And I'm sitting on stage with him and he goes, I love hearing from the chiefs, right? Which is like the sergeant majors, you know, first sergeants, gunnery sergeants in the Marines. And uh, I said, well, because we give you all everything you need to know, you know, believe me when I talk about, you know, Croatian anti-submarine operations. Yeah. I know what <laughs> I'm talking about. You weren't just reading my reports, yeah. right? So yeah. that's, that's my real depth of experience is the fact that I do come from the field. Very hands-on. That's terrific background for our listeners. So just to lay some groundwork and a baseline for our listeners, I think the domestic policy side of the transition usually gets a lot of attention while the defense and the foreign policy side of a transition doesn't as much. So over your career, what types of staffing changes and policy changes have you seen happen during a typical transition and and how anomalous is this one in your view? Well, first off, I would be very far downstream from that, but you could actually tell when there were strategic policy changes. I'll give you some good examples. Uh, when George Herbert Walker Bush was president of the United States, I was involved in a combat action in the Middle East. Uh, we got into direct naval combat with the Iranians in 1988, and it was a savaging. I mean, I don't use the word savage lightly, right? Everything that could happen to the Iranians that day happened to the Iranians. And at the moment that all the strategic objectives were met, it was turned off like a light switch. I wow. mean, and I could see how that played up through the chain of command while you watch the messaging, you watch the orders flow. When the Clinton administration took charge, there was this giant gap in activity. 
And I think that's what we should be seeing. We should be seeing people who will take over operations, will give thought to what they're doing. They will look at the geopolitical map around mm-hmm. the world. They'll determine, you know, why do we have aircraft carriers here? Why do we have aircraft carriers there? And they'll get a really solid transition. Mm-hmm. No one will allow, you know, I joke all the time on television. I say, I usually usually say this this phrase. I say, I am now speaking to all the watch officers in the world <laughs> that are watching this program. And, you know, because I've actually been in that chair where I'm like sleeping, what, nodding what is, off. What is a watch officer? A watch officer are the thousands of people around the world who are sitting in a chair mm-hmm. for eight hours and their job is to watch their little sector of the world and to be prepared to report up chain of command. Yeah. So a watch, you know, so an intelligence watch officer or somebody who like might be at the national counterterrorism center or the national security, um, um, National Security Operations Center at NSA. It's a slow, thankless job. Mm. And it's just like, okay, you know, <laughs> a fruit ship pulled into Tripoli Harbor, yeah. you know. So and on it, a day that something happens, it's, it's a dull. bad day. Yeah. It's <laughs> right. a, well, and when it, well, certainly it gets their attention. <laughs> right. And so when I, when I usually speak to them, it's something that I want to, you know, it's sort of a crafting message. I'm actually boxing them within a, a, a layer of propaganda and it's usually stand up for the honor of your community, right? Mm-hmm. Don't of the intelligence community. Mm-hmm. So the, the reason I mention that is, is that these are the people who are sitting through this transition, right? And wondering what's going to change in three weeks. Um, and, you know, and they may look down at the, you know, or up at their giant command screen in their operations center in between you know, trying to stay awake and runs to the cafeterias and all the important things that watch officers do. But they are, you know, it's sort of like, you know, in, in Game of Thrones, they are the watch, right? Yeah, They're the watchers yeah, on the wall. Right. And they've got to constantly stand up there and, and stare at blank snow. Uh, but the point is, is that things change in relation to the tr- transition from a president of the United States. And we, we are constantly doing, we sort of raise our elevation level, uh, you know, we elevate our level of, of uh, collections against some of our more strategic adversaries like the Chinese. Okay, uh, this would be the time that I were, if I were in Asia Pacific, I would be putting all of my emphasis on Chinese logistics, for example, looking at how ammunition in Southwest or Southeastern China uh, are any, you know, weapons lockers breaking out or any personnel Acti- you know, personnel leaves being canceled or amphibious ships moving from northern China to southern China. In other words, I'd be waiting for an invasion of Taiwan or a massive move in the South China Sea where they just completely militarize the archipelago that are down there, archipelago. Uh, so to see whether they think this is the time to get froggy and jump. Right. And it's it's not. The director of NSA that's going to notice this, right? Or right. the director right. of CIA or DNI. It's going to be some guy, yeah. some, you know, second class petty officer and Marine staff sergeant or an army gunnery, you know, a Marine gunnery sergeant or an army first sergeant or a junior officer whose head will snap up when he goes, wait, why are those amphibious ships moving? Right? That's not right. And that's not right is what the transition is all about, right? You should be getting nothing happening in the transition. But if you have a world of chaos where 
you know, the, the, they, they aren't thinking about what's going on. Or you initiate a combat action or prepare to initiate a combat action. Well, you know, our adversaries are watching us also. And if they see us taking the eye off the ball, maybe it's the time to invade Taiwan, mm-hmm. right? Maybe, mm-hmm. Or what do the Chinese call it? A rogue province mm-hmm. in the South China Sea, right? To bring it back under the fold. Or, you know, maybe it's time for the Russians to carry out some activity in, in northeastern Syria that will not benefit us or, or cut a deal. You know, I mean, the Azeri-Armenian War. For, for example, is a good example of where we should have had our eyes on the ball. The United States supports Armenia. It's a Christian country. They got robbed. The entire, the entire um, conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh, that enclave that juts up out of Armenia into Azerbaijan, which Azerbaijan claims, it's over. Mm-hmm. It's over. They went to war mm-hmm. and they took it, right? And did it with the help of the Turks, a NATO ally who used drones right. and, and equipment and sent mercenaries and all sorts of things over there. Um, I would argue that they knew the United States wouldn't do a damn thing. Not a thing. Because Donald Trump was too focused on his own reelection and then started lying about the reelection right. and then started making it like he wouldn't leave power. It's like the Americans got better things to do. Yeah. But there's some guy who's sitting in, you know, in Cyrillic, Turkey or uh, NATO headquarters in Brussels or, you know, uh, Six Fleet headquarters somewhere in Italy. And their head shoots up and they go, I've got 150 Turkish drones being prepped in, Azer- yeah. in, in Azerbaijan. You know, yeah. what's going on? Yeah. And, you know, and then tanks start moving. And, and, you know, the big thing is when the ammunition comes out of the lockers, right? Out of uh-huh. the big weapons right. depots. Right. That's not an exercise. Uh, I actually, I predicted the invasion of Kuwait by that very measure right really? there. Yeah. Wow. When they start moving thousands of metric tons of ammunition on trains, it's not, not an exercise, sign, right? right? Yeah. So this is why a smooth and easy transition is important because if you have your eye off the ball, your, your opponents, your, your, whether they're near peer partners or they're terrorists. Uh, or or some preparation or, you know, oligarchs and drug mm-hmm. dealers, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. more narco subs to America. You know, the Coast Guard, you know, the Border Patrol is too busy patrolling the streets of Oregon. Yeah. You know, this line in Texas is 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 weakened because 150 CBP agents got sent to Milwaukee. Right. Or your Minneapolis. <laughs> Our adversaries are always watching. And as we know, chaos and confusion and disarray are the weapons that Trump uses in every domain of of his administration, of his life, of his personal of his life. life of his, yeah. This is just how he operates. And yeah, and and it's not like people didn't see this, right? Sure, we all knew this. Yeah, um, and it's just a question of. And here's the biggest problem we had with the media, uh, coming from the media world, yeah, yeah. is that. They kept waiting for some inflection point, some point where he would flip and become presidential. The Van Jones, right. you know, theory <laughs> right. of right. now he At will some become point, presi- it's happen. <laughs> presidential. Well, I've seen far too many third world dictators, potentates yeah. and warlords yeah. that are like Donald Trump. It's just that they go straight to cutting off heads. 
Donald Trump was is trapped and he just wanted power for the use of his own edification and benefit and for people to worship him like the God that some people actually do. Right. Thank God for the many layers of institutional resistance built Mm. into our system. Otherwise, who knows where we would be. (laughs) So let's talk about the staffing changes at DOD. Mm. We've covered them briefly on the podcast before on our weekly roundups, but there were a flurry of changes about a week after the election. Defense Secretary Mark Esper left after he was fired by Trump, along with four other top officials who were overseeing policy and intelligence. Uh, They were all either fired or resigned. And and these officials were replaced by conspiracy theorists, I think it's fair to call them, and Trump loyalists like Anthony Tata, uh, Kosh Patel, Ezra Cohen, um, Ezra Cohen-Watnick, right? Can you help our listeners understand, first of all, how unusual is it, you know, for for these people, these types of people to be installed? And then what will these changes mean for defense policy extending into the early Biden administration? Well, there's some good news and there's some bad news (laughs) in this this discussion. (laughs) First, let me go to the good news. Okay. I don't think that will have much impact at all. In fact, I've said this on air. Uh, several times, I suspect that other than firing Esper, you know, firing Esper was about his decision in June and July to not use the 82nd Airborne's rapid uh, battalion as armed bayoneted soldiers in the streets of Washington, D.C. There were some moves that happened there that most people don't know about unless you read very deeply into the reporting. Uh, A good example is, I think it was the Tennessee and I want to say Alabama National Guard. There were two National Guard units that were bought up for civil disobedience from uh, from other states. Oh, wow. They bought their ammunition. They bought a full combat load of ammunition to these wow. cities. And it was Esper who was like, you could just lock that ammo up right now. Wow. That is not happening. Wow. Uh, and he, there was reporting. I mean, I Trump- remember the tanks in the streets of D.C. I walked right past them. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but... The, you know, National Guard falls under, you know, can can be brought on for these executive actions. And we've seen the National Guard out before. They supplement and augment police forces. Washington, D.C. National Guard was out there uh, for riot control purposes. All well and good. It was the intentions that appeared behind how they were deployed. Bringing the 82nd Airborne's, uh, you know, rapid response unit. Yeah, that unit is designed to do like a combat jump into the f- leading edge of an of, of foreign enemy's invasion oh, wow. to stop them. Uh, and there's, you know, there's this panache about it because they're always prepped. Whatever battalion uh, is ready is always ready with like, you know, 24 hours, 12 hours, six hours notice to go to wherever. Right. And uh, they were supposed to be bought up for riot control purposes and national security purposes. Then there was a military police company that was supposed to come from 10th Mountain Division, which is way up in northwestern uh, New York State. They were supposed to come down and they did. These units were all deployed down there. Esper didn't particularly like bringing the active duty military units down, and neither did General Milley. Uh, and so when they got caught with these units actually in route. And then Trump having that call with the governors Mm -hmm. where he said, I got General Milley here. You're going to be hearing a lot about this guy. He's going to clean this up in no time. You know, Milley was sitting there thinking, (laughs) 
Excuse did, me? Did, did North Korea invade South Korea? Is there something here you didn't brief me in on? Because this is not my job. And it would come, turn out 48 hours later, yeah. he would go in a message to the troops saying, we don't do this. We don't participate in in essentially turning weapons on American citizens. That that image of you know the the armed guards with M1 rifles around the Pentagon in 1968 with fixed bayonets, right? And it was met by girls putting daisies in the barrels, right? 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 Anyone who has ever served in the military is like, we're never doing that again. That's that that in Kent State. These are two things that are not happening. But then they came up with some clever ones that really made Esper angry using the National Guard medevac helicopter to come down there on to Lafayette Square and try right. to use prop wash to get people out right. of the square. I is, mean, that that, what it, is that what it was? That's exactly what it's wash? for. That's Propeller what wash to blow you out in conjunction with gas. You can direct gas wow. and water if you use water cannons. Uh, and worse, I mean, the moment I saw it, I was like, yikes. They're using a protected symbol on the side of the helicopter, the Red Cross. And of course, the next day, the ICRC lodged a complaint against the United States for using protected symbols in offensive actions. So we looked terrible. And Esper had just reached his limit. You know, I mean, he went along to get along, uh, but he wasn't going to use the armed forces as a tool against American citizens. Even, you know, he served. He was a helicopter pilot, if I'm not mistaken. He worked in Army aviation. Uh, between him and Millie, they just shut all that down. And then there was this little back and forth where Esper ordered the 82nd back to Fort Bragg and Trump superseded that order. And then Esper ordered it again. <laughs> so, you know, Trump wasn't particularly happy with somebody, you know, taking his toy soldiers away. So Esper was doomed from that moment. Right. 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 You don't, you know, whatever the, the mafia the yes was. Man. He right. wasn't a yes man. He was living, you know, he's pulling a mattice and, uh, you know, well, Donald Trump has a way to, to handle that. You're fired. But he knew he couldn't do it before the election. And Trump himself said that. Right. Oh, yeah. well, you know, yeah. some guys will be going, you know, yeah. wait till after That's the election. Right. That's right. You know, but this is an election where Donald Trump thought that, you know, he'd be master of the universe, untouchable. He could go after his political and personal enemies with impunity. So, yes, uh, we expected to see Esper go. The others, on the other hand, now, first off, I know, you know, Donald Trump likes these people that he thinks come from central casting. Mm -hmm. So by That's reaching right. into the National Counterterrorism Center, pulling out an ex-Special Forces colonel, who I'm sorry, isn't qualified to run the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. All right. You know, I hear people, you know, I got a big fan base and they're all like, you need to be director of CIA or director of national intelligence. And I go, not qualified. <sighs> but. I am more qualified than John Ratcliffe <laughs> by law. You yeah. have to have served in the U S intelligence community in that job. I did 20 years, you know, actually 35. If you include my intelligence contracting work wow. and uh, this guy, nothing zero. So, you know, bringing that Colonel to be the director of the Pentagon was, is really more a caretaker move because no one. And of course, he did precisely what we all knew. People who were in the field, we knew what he was going to do. He's like, 
what special forces belongs to me now i'm going to make them equal to a combat command right, right. that would be like putting me in charge of edit you know of dni it'd be like first off i want to talk to everybody on the fourth floor of nsa you know who you are we're having a party okay because one of you is now in charge of everything you need a billion dollars i'm gonna give it to you, you. Got it. right wow. it's just like wow. your collection will vastly improve but you know, and of course, guys at the CIA will be grumbling. So right, 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 right. you never do that, right? I mean, it's like it's like putting the fat kid in Charlie's Chocolate Factory. <laughs> you know, he's going to fall in the river of chocolate. He's going to be drowned drinking that stuff. That's what putting this this colonel in charge there did. And here's what's going to happen: nothing. Mm. No one is going to obey his orders for the next thirty days. The, you know, the Pentagon is a phenomenally massive. Uh, infrastructure. And I'm going to give you an idea of how yeah. big it is. I'm going to yeah. tell you a little war story. Yeah. When I was at the, the Pentagon, I wasn't at the Pentagon the morning of 9-11. I was in, on Capitol Hill at the Costa Coffee watching, you know, airplane fly into a building. And I, when I left, I went right down Constitution Avenue. I was waiting next to the Lincoln Memorial and I saw an airplane come from over you know, the Navy Annex, the Sheridan, the old Navy Annex building where the Marine Corps Exchange is now. And it just glided. I said, oh, they rerouted the planes. And it glided right into the building and blew wow. up. So I go over there. I'm working the crash site. We're helping victims come out. I see a colonel. I'm in civilian clothes. And I go, colonel, I need you to go over there and bring me some people over here to help. I swear to God, this is not a joke. He comes back with 20 colonels. They wow. were all like, in a little group over there, like yeah. a little colonel's club. Yeah. And I'm like, one, there's that many colonels <laughs> just on this corner. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that building is massive and it has, you know, I'm sure that was just the guys in his pod, right? right there's probably right. a thousand right. colonels in that building. So the point is they all have the ability to slow down anything you want to do. And so if you say, I want the uh, Special Operations Command brought in as a combatant command under directly under the Secretary of Defense, it's something that, you know, he probably at one of the Special Forces Association parties <laughs> had heard <laughs> from some guys, we should be a combatant command directly under the Secretary of Defense and not work for, you know, those, you know, Department of the Army or the yeah, Department of yeah. the Navy. And so in doing that, he's set a precedence that will probably be overturned should General Austin become the Secretary of Defense in almost three, two, one. It's just never going to happen. Uh, and, you know, some things we may have to finesse with, like Space Force, but the big things, uh, you know, things that have happened in the last 30 days aren't going to change things. Sending Anthony Tata over to be uh, General Counsel, right? Um, uh, it, it, the guy is, is literally a conspiracy theorist. He's a birther. He's a racist. Oh my God, yeah. And here's what's happening. Nothing. Sending Cash Patel, you know, over there to the, you know, to uh, to to manage uh, policy side, if I'm not mistaken, and then to send Ezra Cohen Watnick. This guy's essentially an intern. Okay, <laughs> I had more time in intelligence just going to Defense Language Institute. Okay, then this guy had in all his career, he was like a psychophant under Michael Flynn, who is now the leader of QAnon, right. by the way. And this guy was the guy who was leaking information to Devin Nunes and that whole schmear of inventing that, that they were the unmasking of people and they were spying. Yeah, yeah. 
Here's why they were sent there. So that they could have chirons on Fox News that says, you know, Ezra Cohen Watnick, Undersecretary yeah. of Defense for Intelligence. Yeah. No one in that. I don't even think he's got a clearance yet. You know, I'm sure the SSO, the Special Security Office is like, well, excuse me. You know, we've got to hear <laughs> we we haven't seen your package come over from DIA or the White House yet. And he'll go, the president cleared me. And I'm like, yeah, but the paperwork. <laughs> so I really think most of these appointments are for the Chiron. Yeah. I don't think they were there to, you know, make it so that U.S. troops could take over or use drones. I, you know, I'm constantly answering that. Use drones against U.S. citizens. Yeah. So part of the motivation for removing Esper, it seems to be Trump's plans to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. Uh, you know, on the surface, anyway, that's what it seems to look like. Can you mm. talk about, first of all, do you think that's accurate? And then and can you talk about what that withdrawal of troops could mean in the region and how it could impact Biden's presidency? Mm. You know, I've, I've written three books on Trump. I've interviewed a lot of people that know Trump. Uh, I just had lunch with Anthony Scaramucci recently. And, um, and so I've gotten a lot of insight into yeah, him. Yeah. There is no way moving Esper was about Afghanistan. He doesn't care about Afghanistan. He doesn't care. He, he probably couldn't point to it. Furious, <laughs> furious about Lafayette Square. It is all about you didn't use the military as a hammer to kill these, you know, attack and, and hammer these liberals. Then you all lean back on this. I have to defend the Constitution stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. It's all about his personality. Interesting thing. Anthony Scaramucci told me, he says, you know, the funny thing about Donald is the last thing he's told is the last thing he believes. <laughs> And unless, of course, you find yourself up on the radar where he wants to fire you. Right. And it's the last thing right. you did, right? The last thing Esper did was was not probably kill Americans in Lafayette Square using U.S. service members. I think he really, truly wanted a fixed bayonet moment around the Pentagon. And Milley was, you know, by the way, General Milley was not in camouflage uniform because he came out to do battle. He was at a briefing at the FBI and he was ordered to get over there right now. And he showed up and he's like, what? What's going, <laughs> What's going, on? going on here? Yeah. And then they're like, you're walking with the president. And he's like, I'm in BDUs. I'm in battle dress uniform. And they were like, you know, he's supposed to be in his class A's. Right. And he did he say something after that incident where he was he, like, that was inappropriate. He said right? he felt exploited, yeah. you know, on the insiders. But he said that was completely, uh, you know, not the way it should have been handled. And then, of course, that's when he gave his address to the armed forces. So feel better about that. Afghanistan's another animal. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, I when I wrote my this last book, Plot to Betray America, which is about the internal motivations of Team Trump and how they, you know, they were just like, well, let's just destroy U.S. foreign policy. Um, one of the things that I, I took a lot of flack on it, you know, and uh, Tucker Carlson did an A Block segment on me. Um, on means you're report. doing something right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was all with Brian Williams, you know. And he's just like, how how dare this guy talk about Donald Trump like he's crazy? Because he's crazy. <laughs> but his niece does the same thing. So I think you're I in good company. No, <laughs> I'm in very good company. But um, I had written, I had done more in depth reporting on uh, these 
the study of Donald Trump's intelligence papers that were done by the Czech intelligence agency, the STB. Hmm. And it appeared that they had started collection on him in 1977 because his first wife, Ivana Trump, was a Czech citizen. Mm-hmm. And at that time, that was the Soviet Union's Warsaw Pact. They were behind the Iron Curtain. Anyone who was from the West who was noteworthy or interesting, they collected on. Uh, the reporting party was Ivana's father. <laughs> he oh, was tasked my. to report everything. They had what we call cast iron coverage on his phone. So anytime she called or, you know, or they talked to Donald, Czech intelligence was listening to the phone conversations. And all of this was was gotten by a Czech television channel and Luke Harding over at The Guardian. And it was extensively reported on. And I just amplified that and put it into context. And when that book came out, oh, my God, they went nuts over there at Fox News and on the right. And I know because I wake up in the morning like 4 a.m. and then suddenly it's like, I want to kill you liberals. And it's just like, ah, what did I say (laughs) again? (laughs) So I look back and they're like, that's crazy. Donald Trump wasn't a turned agent. I never said that. I said they started collecting on him Mm. full time. They tried to manipulate him to go. I mean, they worked well at getting him to go to the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, and so the, the reason that I bring this up is that while I looked at that, you could see the raw mindset of Donald Trump as he spoke to his wife, as it was collected by the Czech intelligence agency. And the interesting component is the Czech television station has all of his written records from Czech intelligence. All right. They have it all <laughs> raw. Like, you know, 1979, wow. Ivana Trump called and said, you know, or, or at one point he had talked about running against George Herbert Walker Bush as uh, I want to say the American Freedom Party or something like that. And the KGB knew about this way before anybody in the U.S. government knew about it. And uh, or unless we were collecting right, against right, check intelligence right, right, and right. but the point is is that they had a window into this guy for a long that time for a very long time and that window now That's still informs yeah everything that this man does which is why you should listen to raw intelligence collected by foreign agencies and nancy trump that's fascinating and not something that's really entered the conversation about his psychology at all no. the data points the history the longitude of all of that data gives you way more like accuracy in the trajectory of his behavior yes and this is why i, I- I constantly tell people in, in media that, you know, that I'm not a journalist. Okay. I'm a yeah. spy yeah, uh, and an ex spy. And my job is to see data points. You won't see, you might collect all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I need to make an arc. Mm-hmm. And this goes to your point about mm-hmm. Afghanistan. Why the big thing on right, Afghanistan? Right, right. Why the big thing about North Korea? Why the big thing, you know, why is he doing all these grand sweeping strategic changes? Because in the mid eighties, he saw himself, as wanting to be an interocular between um, the Soviet Union and the United States. And he took out a full page ad in the New York Times asking George Herbert Walker Bush to make him the negotiator, because oh he's God. Donald who does oh the deals, God. the negotiator for the strategic arms reduction talks. Start, right? Yeah. Now, this is interesting because now Donald is trying to destroy 
every treaty we've ever entered into with the Soviet Union that transitioned over to Russia. But he saw himself as an arbiter of a major change in American foreign policy on par with Nixon going to China or the Vietnam negotiations with Kissinger. And now it would be Donald Trump negotiates the reduction of nuclear weapons. And he was so caught up in this that a fake Mikhail Gorbachev came to wash came to New York City. This guy was a comedian, came and convinced Trump that he was Gorbachev. There's a video on on YouTube and Trump comes running down there. Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev. And he talks to me, trying to talk about negotiating start. (laughs) And it was a comedian dressed (laughs) as Gorbachev. That's how desperate he was. So why North Korea? Right? Because he wants this Nixon moment. Why withdraw from Afghanistan? Give the Russians Syria, which I think is two-faced. I think he owes... The Russians something and they said, hey, Syria is one of those things. You don't need to be there, Donald. Remember, last thing he hears from whoever he admires, right? And so he pulls out of Syria and gives it over to the Russians until somebody says, hey, you, you're giving away the oil to the Russians. And then he says, oh, we want to keep the oil field. Afghanistan is in this box. It is in that entire arc of information we had learned from the Soviet and Czech intelligence agencies about how he wanted to be this huge central figure. It has nothing to do with the substance. It has nothing to do with the substance. It has everything to do with his public image of being a big guy on the world stage. Yes, yes. And that's (sighs) why he's like, I want to give away Afghanistan. And the problem is, it's the rest of that sentence, Mm -hmm. okay? To the Taliban and ISIS. <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay, give it he to who? Doesn't, you know, from right. the field perspective, yeah. I understand what's going to happen, okay? I've read, you know, the, the history of, of the British involvement in Afghanistan. I have a first edition from, I want to say it was like 1860, of a book called Kabul, K-A-B-O-O-L. And it is about the massacre of every British soldier in the city of Kabul in the first Afghan war, except for one doctor that they let survive to take the message to India, right? And uh, I mean, everybody was killed in that massacre. Donald Trump doesn't understand these things. History, context, precedence, thoughtfulness, these are not components of his world. He wants that he wants the cover of Time magazine that that, you know, of Nixon going to China. And he thought he got it with North Korea uh, and he thought he got it by going to Helsinki and throwing U.S. intelligence under the bus. He saw himself as an equal to these towering figures amongst the world. The problem is they're dictators. And that's where he sees himself. He wants to be in that club of strongmen, and he doesn't understand he's really being compared to Hitler. Oh my God. There's so many places we could go with that. Hence (laughs) Afghanistan. Okay. No one's leaving Afghanistan, by the way. Yeah. Nobody. They're all going (laughs) back. We are not going to watch the entire Afghan army be slaughtered. And the funny thing is the Taliban know this game. Okay. What what is uh, Rudyard Kipling's famous poem? Uh, that ends with uh, the epitaph drear, a fool lies here who Mm. tried to hustle the East. Mm. Okay, that's Donald Trump's epitaph. Mm. You think you're getting over on the Taliban? (laughs) There's one phrase that I learned when I was in 
when I worked in the Middle East. It's they own this at camel souk. Mm. Right? You think they're mm. going to buy camels from these guys? They own this camel souk. All right? They, they've been hustling each other for <laughs> centuries. So they're going to beat you at this game. And the only game they're not going to beat you at is overwhelming firepower. But we have been doing capacity building in Afghanistan, and that's where our strength lies and, and providing them with aerial uh, and strike support and special operations. The problem is the Taliban has their own existential threat as well. And that's ISIS. Mm-hmm. And ISIS, you know, early on when ISIS came there, the Taliban was like dropping hints to us yeah. <laughs> that, you know, hey, there's an ISIS camp 36 kilometers east yeah. of Asadabab. It would be bad if somebody blew that up. And of course, we'd be on it in an hour killing, you know, wiping out ISIS. Can, can you, for our listeners, give us the the like one to two minute summary of of what you just said there with the the, the tension, the difference between Taliban and ISIS? Because I guarantee yeah. most Americans do not. And they put them in the same category: bad, hate America, terrorists, want to kill. Right? That's that's where most of America is. Can well, you, you have give to us understand the, that the Taliban are essentially the children of the fathers who who fought the Soviet Afghan War, and they were. Uh, you know, they were essentially more religiously orthodox uh, of of the fighters right now. Afghanistan was flooded with these, you know, foreign fighters who would later become this group called Al-Qaeda al-Jihad, right? Ho- headquarters of the Holy War, who was led by the Saudi government's uh, representative in Afghanistan, a guy by the name of Osama bin Laden, right. son of the richest man in, in Saudi Arabia at that time. Those guys went there and then went off and shunted themselves off to South Sudan. The Afghans and their children created this movement of religious fervor uh, to, and took on the warlords that were dividing Afghanistan up like a bunch of ravenous wolves. So Game of Thrones analogy, yeah, right? Perfect. The, the warlords are wolves. The Taliban quietly grew out in the east in 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 pakistan and became dire wolves right these Uh, animals that are three times the size of wolves and will snap a wolf's neck right and they came through with this in their the title taliban actually means student the students and they were religiously motivated students very orthodox and they just swept through the country on the basis of religious fervor and said to the locals we're going to convert this country into an islamic state of afghanistan peaceful they did it wiped out the opium trade brought essentially peace to the country but they in- enacted hard strict sharia law they also allowed osama bin laden and his band of men to come from sudan to afghanistan and establish uh, their military training went into the Taliban. So they became joined with Al-Qaeda and mm. everything Al-Qaeda did, including bombing the American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Okay, Bin so that's, that's, that. ta- that's the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. That's the Taliban. And ISIS. ISIS is Al-Qaeda's fifth generation. They're like, um, if, uh, if, if, if uh, Ronaldo is, is Osama <laughs> Bin Laden, right? These, the, the ISIS are the kids that are still on the soccer pitches in, in Brazil, okay, in Angola. Uh. And they are, every one of them was like, we're inviting you to come over here and you can be a hero and a prince in your own right if you have this religious fervor and you can have all the women you want. And you can kill anybody that you want mm-hmm. and you will be a better Muslim because you will be, you will behave and act like a Muslim who exists in 632. 
not wow. a Muslim that exists in 2020. Wow. And that brought every fanatic in the world mm -hmm. to the Islamic State, no matter where it was, Sudan, Somalia, North Africa. ISIS also established ISIS Khorasan, which is ISIS-K, what we call it, which established itself in eastern Afghanistan, western Pakistan, northeastern Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan, northwestern Pakistan, and were a far more virulent group mm. who thought Al-Qaeda, old guys, we're just going to take over now. And they are the hardcore jihadists who think the Taliban are a bunch of wussies. Wow. And that's why wow. sometimes okay. we have a synergy with the Taliban. The problem is there's a better chance that ISIS will take over the Taliban than the Taliban will take over ISIS. I see. So back to the staff changes. Kash Patel, who is one of the Trump loyalists who was installed at DOD last month, is now heading the defense transition efforts. And he was involved in an effort to spread conspiracy theories about Biden and attempts to coerce Ukraine into investigating Biden, according to CNN. And CNN also reported that Patel blocked meetings between Pentagon officials and the Biden administration team. That was very recently. Right. So first, can you talk about the impact that having someone with Patel's background running the transition could have, but then also, you know, how these delays will impact national security because we're already behind in this, in this transition? Let's put it this way. Let me put Cash Patel's position right now uh, and his apparent assigned job. He is the doorman, right, on a Fifth Avenue hotel. Right? He's a doorman on a Fifth Avenue apartment building. His sole job right now is to really block a transition. We know, I mean, this guy he came from Congress. He's, uh, he's a dirty trickster. He has been put into the Pentagon, apparently to do this very role which is to screw with the Biden team and try to infect the Pentagon with all of his craziness. Again, this is another plan that's not going to work. The only thing that's going to work is him ignoring the transition. And, you know, by law, he can actually run the clock out. He can go right up to the to the day of the inauguration at 12, one minute past noon. Of course, uh, everyone will say, hey, why are you in the building? Your clearance has been suspended. You're unauthorized personnel. Everybody put black covers over your desk. Cash Patel's leaving the room, right? <laughs> so, which is a day that I would pay money to sit there to have the little red light flashing for uncleared in the room. Is, a is cash that what happens? Yes. Is a, there's a red light that flashes? Yeah, yeah, that tells you that like contractors are in there who aren't cleared. Oh, uncleared. Wow. You put black cloths over your table. You start slamming the safe door oh, shut. Wow. Right? Cash Patel departing. <laughs> uh, and he wouldn't even get an announcement, right? His badge won't work anymore. He can't go to the cafeteria. He's got to go down to the metro entrance to get food so you know uh but he he apparently has been put there as a bugaboo but i really think that this is to reward him with their chiron uh what now more importantly what will this do to the national security of the united states this is why i i really think it's important to get general austin and his senior staff uh spooled up as quickly as possible and to have the other picks for the pentagon done as well. I would announce right now, I mean, it, it, as soon as General Austin can be chosen, I would just make it clear that you're going to get some true professionals in the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, Undersecretary of Defense for Special Operations, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and Plans. Uh, and then you just make it clear like, hey, uh, whatever, when you make that announcement, no one's going to listen to whoever's sitting at that desk. Mm. They're going to go, hey, uh, we're, I'm going to take two weeks leave. 
and <laughs> and we're gonna come back, uh, you know, around the seventh of January, and then we're gonna do cleanup and maintenance. The problem is, if there is a crisis that emerges here, you're gonna have to deal with these guys, right? Um, you know, so we're kind for, of on thin ice for the next, uh, we're you know, forty something days. Thin ice yeah. because these are the kind of guys who will go on Fox News and will be talking to the president as Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and the Secretary of Defense and say, "Well, you know, I think we need to do landed amphibious force in Taiwan, and you know, and I think we need to bring all the special operations and land seals all over the China Beach, you know, China Coast, and just things that aren't thought <laughs> out, right?" Look, uh, you know, although I am not a policy guy, yeah. I executed policy. But when you're in the driver's seat where you're wearing headphones like this for 18 to 20 hours a day, right? And you're nodding off in between Krispy Kremes. Um, you have a lot of time to understand where your bit of collection will fit right into that policy discussion. I have literally seen discussions in the White House change or from the National Command Authority, as we call it, change. Because I had collected a piece of information. And I mean, you know, what we call hot copy. Yeah. And I remember one which was really significant. Significant. Like the director of NSA came down to check himself. And uh, and they were just like, oh, this is going to change some things, right? (laughs) And it's just like somebody, or as we like to say, someone's getting their ass beat, right? Um, And you know, you're like, okay, I may, this is big. Now, how does it fit? within the the parameters of how this white house has been behaving are they thoughtful are they heavy are they will they drop a hammer down on top of them and i remember a good example is the libyan air raid um and uh i i i'm writing my memoirs right now it still has to be cleared by three agencies but i remember that that coming in and watching the information that we had, which Ronald Reagan put out, declassified and put out in front of the United Nations and thinking the geopolitical balance of the Middle East is about to change mm-hmm. and is about to make Libya is a pain in the butt. They're now about to become global pariah number one. And Ronald Reagan was shooting, was not shooting with blanks. This, this guy was firing off and you could just see things were going to change dramatically. The policies all changed. The military structure in the Mediterranean changed, right? Aircraft carriers started appearing out of nowhere, you know? So it is, it's very important that you have the right people there. There's a reason that there's a thousand colonels in the building, right? That's a thousand levels of, you know, flag level thoughtfulness going on to pass that on to the generals and passing it up to the joint staff, passing it up to the chairman, and then giving the secretary of defense an informed position. Good example where that really sucks and where people shoot from the hip is the Navy SEAL raid, which took place the day after the inauguration, I believe within a day or so of the inauguration, a mission that the Obama Pentagon was like, don't do this mission. It's too high risk. Uh, You can't, you know, translating one SEAL or two SEALs dead for five or six Yemeni guards is not cost, you know, it's not mission effective. They executed the raid without a thought without a thought, killed a Navy chief uh, SEAL that took 20 years to get him up to that level of excellence. And yeah, we, we killed a few guards and, uh, you know, uh, we didn't uh, get our, uh, our hostage out, if I'm not mistaken. And then the attack on the Syrian air, air bases, 
Look, I was one of the big guys. I was one of the big people to push that Barack Obama's red line needed to be so bright red that he used chemicals. And when he used chemicals, I said, the punishment needs to fit to yeah. fit what this is. Yeah. The when strategic, Assad used chemicals. Yes. When, yeah. The right. first. Yes. Right. When he used chemicals and the, it, the red line needs to be this. The punishment needs to be the entirety of the Syrian Air Force needs to disappear. Right. I want to now I want to change the strategic balance. I want Syria to know their skies will never again be safe. The Israelis will have total air dominance of Syrian airspace. That's what you get for using chemical weapons against your own population. Yeah. Yeah. By pulling their punch, right. they signal that they have, they, you can cross any red line. They don't give two flips. The Trump people did the exact same thing by one, wasting a boatloads of cruise missiles to attack a base that they had warned the Russians we were going to attack. No one got killed. Old aircraft were put out onto the runway. The runway was in operation within 12 hours and ginormous stocks of chemical weapons were sitting next to their revetments out there untouched. Right? That you cannot play games. Those two actions took place in the first 30 to 60 days of the Trump administration. And they showed to the world, this guy will not, he's he's not thinking. Yeah. He's no, no actual thought was given to that during the transition at all. It was, Hey, we're going to get big desk. Yeah. We're all going to get great jobs. We're going to be talking on Fox news. And look, these people, I I suspect they still don't know where the cafeteria or the Krispy Kreme is. (laughs) (laughs) So back in July, the Trump administration said it was going to reduce the number of troops in Germany Mm. from 36,000 down to 11,900. And now the National Defense Authorization Act, which has passed with a veto-proof majority in both the House and the Senate, Mm -hmm. has a provision that would effectively block the reduction of troops in Germany. So before before we talk about like you know what what dangers would removing them pose as close to administration can you first talk about how critical these troops are to our national defense and what what are we doing with so many people in germany in the in the first place <laughs> so many people yeah. i love that quaint phrase okay you obviously weren't in germany during the cold war <laughs> okay elvis served in germany <laughs> okay that's how we used to have hundreds of thousands of troops in Germany until the late, late, until the early 1990s. Uh, give you a, give you some context. Well, first off, let me give you history because I know a lot of youngins are watching. Okay, kids, way back when, at the end of World War II, (laughs) these people we had to work with who were actually bad, the Soviet communists, uh, they didn't live up to the agreements of pulling out of Europe. They took over half of Europe, slapped up an iron wall, which uh, slapped up a wall we called the Iron Curtain, Mm -hmm. and made their own confrontation force against NATO called the Warsaw Pact. And that stood until 1988, when the cracks started to fall, the Soviet Union collapsed, Germany withdrew, East Germany uh, left and reunified with West Germany to become modern day Germany. And all of these countries got their independence back and the Soviet Union collapsed and became the modern day Russian Federation. Okay, that's what happened. And if you need a primer on it, there's a cartoon you can watch called Rock, The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> and it will teach you all you need to know about the Cold War because Bullwinkle and Rocky, our hapless heroes, are essentially NATO in the West and Boris Badenov and Natasha Fatal 
working for Mr. Big are the East. Okay? I love, I love Rocky and Bullwinkle. You have to break it down Bullwinkle style yeah. for people yep. to understand that. Cause yep. I've met lots of people in this, this world yeah. who yeah. literally at, would ask me, what's the Soviet union? And it's like, Oh, oh my wow. God. Okay. Oh, wow. So that being said, in 1945, after we occupied uh, former Nazi Germany and the Russians took half of it to create its own, you know, sort of communist patron state known as the German Democratic Republic, we went into a face to face confrontation with the Soviet Union that lasted from 1945 until 1989. Two armies, NATO, made up of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of troops, including hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops, were stationed in Germany like everywhere. <laughs> you know, you, you spit you the U.S. service member. And they were there in order to protect Western Europe from an invasion of the communists. And again, Elvis served there, <laughs> to give you an idea. I mean, baby Elvis served yeah, there. Yeah. Um, so... When the Soviet Union collapsed in East Germany and West Germany became Germany and reunited, there was no need to have those troops there. Therefore, we did a massive defense reduction in Europe, brought ourselves down to a skeleton framework, gave to the German nation, which now had double the number of people, right? Um, all of the resources that we had there. Good example, I served in Augsburg, Germany for a while. And I actually had to go on temporary duty there for this intelligence collection mission with the army. And they put me up in temporary housing, which was like a 5,000 unit apartment unit military housing. Wow. That was occupied by me. <laughs> I was the only person in it. And they were, they were the next month going to turn it over to the German government. And it was brand new housing. We actually wow. had to fulfill the contract to build all that military housing to turn over to the Germans. That's how fast we left that country. And uh, I had to get my own sheets. So th when we talk about Germany, yeah. we we're talking about we had great depth with them since the end of World War II. Germany now is, how can I put it? They are the Americans we should be. Mm. Okay. They hate war. They don't like military adventurism. Uh, they try to stand up for, you know, values of human rights and yeah, all these things. Yeah. And Donald Trump, with a white hot passion, hates Angela Merkel because she and she is from the East. Yeah. She's East German. She was born in a communist nation. I mean, we've joked on this podcast before about how she is now the leader of the free world and not and not the president of the United not States. Not a joke. Yeah. And interestingly enough, first language for her, well, first foreign language was Russian, you know, and she but then again. She's got her doctorate yeah. in quantum physics or something. <laughs> like, I'm not joking. She does. Yeah. And she is a very bright person, but she understood what the reunification was about, why we needed the United States, the critical necessity of NATO and the alliances. Donald Trump believes in none of them because, because apparently the Russians were the last people to talk to him yeah. and convinced him that NATO was a threat to their, you know, their oligarch money. Yeah. And if he didn't get rid of it, you know, he wouldn't ever be invited to those yachts that have yacht elevators and, you know, hot naked dancing chicks in them. So as, as simplistic as that sounds, yeah. um, Germany is a critical hub for all of our operations in Eastern Europe. Did I say Eastern Europe? The Eastern Hemisphere. 
Oh, right? Our intelligence collection assets are there. We have special operations forces in Stuttgart that, that deploy all the way down till subset through sub-Saharan Africa. Landstuhl Military Hospital is our principal evacuation point for the entire Eastern Hemisphere. So if you're shot or you get IED'd in Afghanistan, they've, they've, they box you up, they package you, they stabilize you, and you are flown to Landstuhl Army Hospital, which is a massive building that has been there since Elvis was in Germany. And is an in ginormous infrastructure, which was handling thousands of combat wounded uh, out of theater with the finest medicine until they could stabilize you and fly you out to Texas or fly you to Walter Reed. That place is critical to the United States. Next is Ramstein Air Base. Yeah, Ramstein, which is right. which is right there. Those two bases are are co-joined by the way. Got it. Largest base prior to Rhein-Main, which used to be Frankfurt International, which is Frankfurt International Airport. These hubs are very, very large uh, logistics hubs for U.S. forces in Europe and logistics hubs flying into the Middle East, North Africa, Eastern Europe, Southwest Asia, and all points east. So when we have to work with the Poles, everything goes into Germany or it's shipped Got into it. Germany. Then it can be trucked over by Europeans and or tanks can go over by rail to Poland. If you want to, you know, provide logistics to Ukraine, you don't fly it. You, sh- you take the stocks that are in Got Germany, it. you sh- transfer it over. I mean, it, it, you know, you can't do everything from England. Right, either. right. So this isn't so much about Germany as it is about our ability to operate in that entire hemisphere of the world. Yes, but we built, you know, it's just like, it's like these insane talks that I have from time to time with, you know, obviously I I understand the geopolitical balance, right? I know what happens in the world. Uh, And and when you talk about removing our forces from Germany and, and shifting them east to Poland, you're talking about now you have to use the entire infrastructure that we have that's in Germany. And, and recreate something that's been there since 1945. Wow. Right? It's insane. That is insane. I mean, it, it's like yeah. saying the FedEx hub right now is in Nashville, you know, or wherever, Louisville, Kentucky, and we're just going to destroy it and we're going to rebuild it in Miami, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> it's yeah. warmer and you can get better margaritas there. And you don't do it for those reasons. He's doing it because he hates Angela Merkel per- personally. And he doesn't like that the Germans are better Americans than he has created in this country. That is, is such a good explanation. But it's mind-bogglingly it mind-boggling. stupid. Yeah, yeah. But it is so it is so unbelievably consistent with his character and everything that we know about him. So that like it's just one additional data point on that plot. It is. Okay, in late November, the Trump administration officially withdrew from the Open Skies Treaty. And we've talked about this a little bit, um, which was a post-Cold War agreement allowing nations to conduct flyovers of allies in an attempt to collect intelligence on neighboring enemies. The U.S. withdrawal was criticized as a gift to Putin. Can you talk about how important this treaty in particular was for intelligence gathering. And I'm also wondering, you know, all of this is in the context of a transition and the incoming Biden administration. So I'm wondering how difficult it's going to be for the Biden administration to recreate that intelligence gathering and what changes are going to be easily fixable and what's going to take more time. You know, I've, I've heard it said that Trump breaks treaties so that he can re-sign the treaties and call them Trump treaties, uh-huh. you know? And mm-hmm. the open skies one is a little baffling. Mm. And this 
starts to delve into the areas that I wrote about in, in my three books about a debt that Donald Trump has to Vladimir Putin. Mm. Where would he have ever heard about this is my first thought. Okay, virtually no American knows about the Open Skies Treaty. Here's what, here's what the Open Skies Treaty was. When we were having detente with the Soviet Union, one of the things that we decided that we needed, you got to remember, we have very good satellite capability. But one of the components of having very good satellite capability is not letting on and knowing how good, how good your satellite is. capability right. is, right? <laughs> so one of the areas that, that, that came up that you, you always get better coverage and get more precise collection capability from imagery, from, from a camera mm-hmm. when you're, you know, 10,000 feet above it as opposed to 400 miles, right? And it's, if you think about it, it's really a Cold War relic to use these aircraft that has very, very, very high resolution cameras. They have uh, very uh, high sensitivity sensors. And as part of the treaty, the Open Skies Treaty is really about intelligence stability. It is not really about collecting data. It's not about collecting data. It's about confirming that the things you know are being maintained precisely as they are. So if I, you know, and as part of this for your enemy to know what's going on, and this benefited Russia early on, but it benefited Russia only in the sense that we were doing this for strategic weapons. Mm. This is what this was really about. So Mm. if you have, let's say, 500 Minuteman 3 ballistic missile silos arrayed out from Kansas all the way to the top of North Dakota, right? Of course, the Russians have the ability to look at that, right? Mm -hmm. But if you have a treaty in which you can constantly confirm that and make sure that 200 of those silos weren't secretly dismantled Uh, and moved elsewhere onto rail cars while the satellite coverage was gone, and you can determine that by the amount of activity around that silo by how much grass grows around the output of the air shafts. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. things you got to think about here. I've been to abandoned silos and you can go, this place Mm -hmm. isn't breathing, right? This Mm -hmm. place isn't alive. Uh, Even when you're doing deception, there's some things that, you know, there'll be thermal signatures you just can't mimic. So it's better to do that in this agreement with your enemy or your near peer adversary to say, we will constantly check on these systems as part of the nuclear balance so that it does not go out of shape. And that way you will know we ain't lying. We will know you're not lying. Right. And when we come over there and, you know, you say we have 732 launch silos and they're all, you know, nominally operational and you go through and you do a count and your intelligence is counted 739 Mm. and three of them have been concealed Mm -hmm. and you go, okay, well, that's nice. We believe you. And now you're, you know, you're, um, uh, I this think is was, the tr- this is the verify and the trust but verify maximum. Yeah. right. Your OR one thirty five reconnaissance aircraft goes over there. Now it's collecting within the treaty. Right. It's not collecting things outside of the treaty. It's not doing industrial espionage. Right. So it goes through and it goes. Really? Yeah, you do have two hundred and thirty seven. But I've got three more silos over here you have concealed. And here's the, you know, here's a picture of its rivets. And here's where, here's where the dog, your, your watch, you know, your, your guard dogs have 
buried right. a track in it in thermal. <laughs> you know, I mean, real Jason Bourne stuff. You can get that if you're at 30,000 feet with cameras the size of a room, right? Looking right. down on there and the Russians are like, ah, oh, we can't cheat with that. Yeah. That that program was designed to maintain to the, keep people the, from cheating. Yes, right. the nuclear balance between the two nations by giving them an opportunity to fly over the United States to collect intelligence. Look, this isn't a freaking uh, Lancaster bomber reconnaissance mission in World War II over right. Kiel. Right. Okay. Right. There are right. not three hundred fighters coming up, and you can't get that film. You know, um, yeah. one of my favorite films, by the way touching on pop reference is um is ice station zebra right where in the oh, old days this. where they would act, oh my god you gotta <laughs> watch that this. film okay the i'm first, adding it to the list the first geopolitical film which was viable where i thought everything that's happening in this film could possibly have happened you know, including the Russians and the Americans at an armed standoff at an ice station run by spies. <laughs> and you're like, what the, to get microfilm that had been dropped from a satellite, because that's how they used to drop the satellite, drop the film. From a satellite. From a satellite. The problem oh, wow. is, is that the satellite went astray and went over both Russia and the United States. So whoever oh. got it would win. Yeah, it doesn't do that anymore, but they used to do that. So these aircraft would mimic this and you wouldn't have these standoffs mm -hmm. and you could find when somebody was cheating. Yeah. Now, Donald Trump, for some bizarre, strange reason, this treaty popped up in his desk and he was just like, no, let's get rid of it, which will benefit Russia. Now, granted, our ability to collect via satellite is second to none. Second yeah. to none. National yeah. Geospatial yeah. Intelligence Agency, the yeah. smallest of all the super yeah. secret ABC yeah. agencies. Nobody and really thinks about that one. Naima, right. you know, those guys, <laughs> they're probably used, the to like called, <laughs> used to be called the NRO, right? National Reconnaissance Office. They are good at what they do. They are good, good. So this, so this treaty is 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 like you know maybe an analogy is a you know in the heist movies where there's a camera in the hallway that's constantly swiveling and now you know it's possible to 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 get through the hallway without the camera catching you right without this treaty. I would think that it's it's a better way to put it is I would it, it's like a camera that's looking at Hannibal Lecter in his cage mm -hmm. and somebody puts it on a loop. And, uh, you know, I and see. It's the Russians that'll have it on a loop, and we will be like, Hannibal Lecter's in his oh, case. He's still in or, there. He's still or in there. We just cut the feed to our side. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. and the next thing you know, somebody's, you know, making livers with, with fava beans. The purpose of this treaty was strategic trust. Donald Trump seemed to want to give this will give Russia the ability without a treaty to cheat. And then we will have to expose, you know, our intelligence capabilities the way he did when he put that picture of the Iranian nuclear, the Iranian ballistic missile launch site up, which is the moment I saw it was like, that's a top secret picture that that no one should be showing this Nobody picture. Should be well, this. he's doing this for Russia now. He's cutting them a break. And uh, I have no idea. And also, the, the funny thing is, they didn't want to authorize in our seven hundred and ninety billion dollar defense budget. Four RC, uh, ORC-130 reconnaissance aircraft, yeah, it's OR-135 reconnaissance aircraft, to be replaced and refurbished. How much really? they cost? 
It doesn't matter what they cost. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's got to be compared to the Pentagon budget compared to that 30, bucket, yeah. 40 bucks. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> right, right, right. These aircraft, you you know what? If you had proposed doing a 737 Max version, yeah. you know, yeah. if, to Boeing, Boeing yeah. would have had new aircraft plans right, right up there. Right. These aircraft are antiquated. The, the ones that they had in there and they needed to be replaced just to maintain the treaty. So I do not understand why Donald Trump did that. And I'm certain someday, as somebody, as somebody said after the election, it's all going to come out in the next mm-hmm. few years. Mm-hmm. We've talked about a lot of the damage that Trump has been able to do to our Defense Department and the intelligence community in the last four years and in the lame duck period. Mm. Are there any other examples you, you feel like we should, you, know, you should mention? Um, in terms of how how he's impacted the position of the U.S. on the world stage, any any that we didn't talk about that you think are particularly noteworthy? To a certain extent, I've I've actually gotten into trouble for this. Uh, <laughs> I was at a Washington Post forum uh, with with a very prominent neoconservative, and at, in the middle of my spiel, I said, "Look, there's there's one thing that really is going to have to happen after the era of Donald Trump," and I said, "Russia needs to be punished." I mean, punished with a P. And he was just like, well, I thought I was the neoconservative on the panel. <laughs> and I was like, you were until they attacked the United States. Um, and one of the components of that is, and it, people have characterized it that I want a, I want a new Cold War. No, mm. I don't want a new Cold War. Mm. Uh, but I do think that we're going to have to go to a new gray war with Russian intelligence. And, you know, I, I joked that we are essentially the way the Chinese and the, the Russians are acting these days around the world. Yeah. We are closer to 1960, 61 and 62 uh, in the way that they're behaving. Like China is buying Africa, for example, just buying entire governments, turning countries into right. essentially farms right. for the Chinese food Man, we market. should do a whole episode on what they're doing in Africa. You That's should. a completely different thing. Yeah, here's, but, a, but, here's, a, here's a good micro example. Of yeah. it. Some Africans, I've, I've been over there to many of these countries, they don't want our clothes donations anymore. They can get new clothes from China. cheaper yep. from China yep. and they maintain their dignity, yeah. their quality of life rises. Yeah. Yeah. And the Chinese fly in their workers. They don't ever see them. They'll work diamond mines and things that Africans, you know, would have had a job on. And they'll extract, you know, if, if it costs 10 cents to extract in this place and it wasn't worth it because you had to spend a dollar, China will go spend a dollar to get that 10 cents of, oil, of, of, chi- of graphite or near earth minerals or, or, or gold or uranium. Uh, the Russians, on the other hand, are now trying to play in that game. Interestingly enough, they're leading off by sending their mercenary group, their version of Blackwater, PMC Wagner, around sub-Saharan Africa. Whoa. To, yeah. And, I did not uh, know that. I, I believe it was ABC News did a really good investigative. They wow. have the, uh, this really good investigative journalist. And she went to the center of DR Congo. If you haven't been around the Democratic Republic of Congo, don't. Um, yeah, it's I'm not what sure I you want to. think of a really bad... African black water as because once you leave the capital and you head on to the rivers, it's what, by the way, this is where the heart of darkness was written about, right? The original book going up a river into the, the heart of Africa. Um, 
you just get, you know, the Russians are there teaching mercenarying for warlords. They are also doing diamond extraction. And so they say it's like they had read a book about the old South African mercenary company, Executive Outcomes, right? And in Liberia and how they were running diamond mines. And somebody said, this is a good idea, <laughs> you know, and, you know, when we're not being slaughtered in Syria, PMC Wagner is everywhere now. They were in Libya fighting on the side of Khalifa Haftar against the UN recognized government. They're doing operations in Syria. They're do they uh, they supposedly uh, were doing collection operations for the FSB as informal civilians. And you know the funny thing about it is Eric Prince who when I lived in Abu Dhabi Eric Prince was living there creating a mercenary army for the sheikhs palaces made up out of Colombian soldiers and now runs the largest private security training company in the world in China, right? But will sell his services to anybody. But Russia has decided there's a market for this. And this is how we get into South Sudan. And this is how we get into Libya. And this is how we get into those places where there is no real rule of law. Yeah. And yeah. It's the, it is not the Wild West. It's Congo 1961, where people where you would have French enclaves and British enclaves and American enclaves. And then they, the warlords were coming and kill all the French citizens. And the CIA was secretly bombing people with contractors. Yeah, as wilder like, than the wild, wild west. Yeah, yeah, for the Russians. The problem is we're not in there at all. We're not there at all. It's like we completely withdrew from Africa accepting counterterrorism. You know why? Because there's black people there. The China sees dollar signs. The Russia, the Russians see post-war oligarchical influence for when those warlords make some money, right? What are we seeing? We're sending customs and border patrol to Portland, Oregon. Unbelievable. I was going to ask you how all the, I mean, I should ask you how this is going to affect the Biden, the Biden administration and what they're going to need to do to change course. But I think we've got a whole bunch of things that they're going to need to do to change course. One quick yeah. thing before we close is here's what I have one is, more question for you before we close. But go ahead. Oh, well, well, go ahead and ask. Maybe it's what I was going to do, what I was going to say. Well, Let me I wanted to know about Space Force. <laughs> here's what I think of Space Force, right? Yeah. The Steve Carell version of Space Force yeah. is actually better <laughs> than real Space Force. I think that when Lloyd Austin comes in, the first thing he needs to say is, okay, we're eliminating Space Force. Okay, <laughs> you know, no space cadets. What we're gonna do? That because is it, it is a joke, right? It is a joke. Okay, I just want I just wanted a, to make sure it is an it's air actually force should be a joke. It is a joke. It's okay. an air force strategic domain because first off, Donald Trump doesn't know this. We have treaties against the weaponization of space, <laughs> and he's talking about weaponizing space and doing space space patrols and and all these things. And it's like. Dude, we signed paper that this, you don't you want do this to happen. Right. You don't want them to put, to say, oh, well, while you're doing that, Donald, um, you know, go ahead, have space command. We're going to be putting, you know, hunter killer space, uh, space, space, anti-satellite weapon systems up there, which was a huge threat yeah. in the, in the closing days yeah. of the cold war, right. HSKs, right? Right. Uh, hunter killer satellites, HKSs. And, uh, and we were creating anti-satellite boost weapons. Uh, another thing is that if you haven't, 
Um, look, we have so many pop cultural references yeah, in, this, in this podcast. It's actually great. You, what, uh, what's the name of that movie where the space shuttle gets hit by debris? The space oh, station gets hit by debris. Interstellar? Over. No, uh, um, gravity. 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 Yeah. Yeah, that's real. And when you experiment in space and explode things in space, even if you hit it with a kinetic uh, launch system, millions of pieces of that debris now has to be tracked. And I know that people are saying, you know, they want to do like a space vacuum cleaner to go oh around and gosh, do yeah, space yeah, yeah. debris. Yeah. That stuff is moving at the speed of the earth, right? And Which is like 30,000 miles an yeah, hour or something 30,000 like yeah. miles an hour. Right. And it will go through you and completely destroy, utterly destroy a, 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 a space station. So one, why are we doing this? Two, the only thing space is really needed for is to be a domain of surveillance. But, you know, if you want to make a counter surveillance, look, you got plenty of money, land-based anti-missile, uh, anti-space system, you know, uh, lasers. Uh, and our lasers are very, very good now. Oh to God, the point now where I want to talk to you about lasers, man. No. <laughs> oh, there's so Here, much. Here's, okay. Here's my own, my last story. You got to come uh, back so we can talk about lasers. <laughs> only in the sense that, you know, I'm on the board of the International Spy Museum, the board of advisors. Yeah, and yeah. It's a one great day they, museum. For anybody who comes to visit DC, oh you need God. to go to the you International Spy Museum. You must go to the Spy Museum. Yeah. They are doing COVID precautions. They've hired back. Uh, most of their staff, you can see the three exhibits that I'm in, uh, and so um, cool. including the waterboarding exhibit. Oh my gosh, I don't think that <laughs> was My waterboard kit is there. But um, at one point, they wanted to have this big party at the Old Spy Museum. And I was just like, well, what, are we, what do you want to call it? And she goes, well, I don't know. She goes, we're going to call it the, the Spy Museum, you know, Young Singles Party. And I was like, <laughs> no. I said, I'm not going to be involved unless it's called Sharks with Freaking Lasers on their yes, head. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they called it the Sharks no, they with Freaking Lasers. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. They had a bucking bronco rideable shark oh my god where they put oh lasers on its head that you could ride <laughs> in the spy museum so see we're fun behind cipher lock doors yeah. because we have nothing yeah. we joke like this all the time because this is all you have to do during the day in between horrible terrible things so what's your last question um <laughs> that was the question. Oh, <laughs> I wanted to know. Was. I wanted to know about Space Force. I really did. I was, I've been. I've been. I've been dying to ask somebody I about how big a joke it is. And yeah, Steve so, Carell's the, the, the TV show is way better. And I really don't I've, think I've only watched the first couple of episodes. I just started it, and it is hilarious. I, I really so don't good. think as a as a battle command that it as a national command it'll stay. It's it's a domain that should be put under the Air Force. There, there was space command, but all those resources coming from the five services, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's like taking, uh, it's like taking one of those, uh, fruit tart, cherry cake, uh, uh, uh cheesecakes and throwing it into a blender. And it's like, that's not going to work. So I have one warning yeah. for you. Yeah. So now we've we've had this wonderful discussion about national security and as it exists. And here's something that I, I'm sure Lincoln Project fans will will all uh, appreciate. I'm writing a, a. I swore I would never write another Trump Russia book, another book on Trump. I swore I wouldn't. Um, and I, I've just inked a contract because I'm writing a book on what's about to come that's going to affect oh all of our lives. God. And that is what I call the 
Trump insurgency that is about to start in the United States. Um, all of our our biggest threats are now to become intern insider threats. Yeah, and are. Donald Trump is essentially, you know, what did they say? Mao Zedong and the Department of Defense defines uh, the the first phase of insurgency as a political uprising to destabilize legitimate governments by claiming there's an alternate an alternative to your government and starting low grade uh, military and terrorist actions in order to prove that the country can't be kept safe. Yeah. I suspect you know, that's where we're going right now. I, um, I, it's an extremely sobering thought and a conversation I'd love to have with you because it dovetails with the conversation I had with Ann Applebaum about. Oh, she, she what, knows too. She's, she's just, she's just. So She'll terrific. tell you about Eastern Europe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, I mean, our, our, our chat was about what it looks like when authoritarianism takes hold in a democracy and the signs of that all around us. And you're talking about what that happens at, at a at a slightly more mature stage. And, and we're there. And if you there, just look right. at the, the tweets Donald Trump right. put out a right. couple of days ago, or quoting that we've reached our breaking point, um, this rhetoric, people are actually waiting for his orders now. And I, I monitor right-wing extremism like I monitored the Taliban, right? I, 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 I can, you know, they generally don't lie when they talk to each other. Uh, which is why signals intelligence is always better than human intelligence. So yeah. uh, I think we're getting to a point here where we may have to confront uh, our own insider threat with a Donald Trump acting as as president in exile who has been overthrown in a coup and is calling on the nation to fight back. Wow. It's dangerous. Well, Malcolm, as you're thinking through that book, I'd love to have you back to to talk about uh, that conversation. But yeah, it's yeah. been it's been so good uh, to to visit with you. Thank you for educating our listeners um, and and fleshing out a lot of these changes for us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for being here. Well, anytime I can break it down Barney style for you, please <laughs> invite me back. I'm good at that. Absolutely. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.